Good morning, everybody. Um, you know what? I remembered we talked about how I needed to move a little bit to the left, and so I'll do that now. Um, so uh, first of all, um, just wanted to say again, as, as Jen said, um, just thank you so much to, uh, to, to Brady Steinor th- this morning just for outstanding... Um, Brady traveled all the way from, what was it, Shippensburg, PA, uh, to be with us today. So, man, thank you very much. Uh, We were all blessed by that. Um, So we're continuing today in a series um, on the patriarchs, uh, the family that God used as a rescue mission to save the world. Um, And I will say right up front um, that we're going to look at a few things today. We're going to be in Genesis 29 through 36 or thereabouts. Um, We're going to look at a few things today, a few details um, that are going to be a bit peculiar, a bit odd. Um, One of the things that I said when when we were doing our our, our prayer exercise there a few minutes ago was mysterious. I I worship God and I adore God for His mysteriousness. And one of the things that we're going to see in this particular story um, today is that God does uh, seek to uh, have us wrestle with these stories and wrestle with the truths um, that He comes uh, with uh, in Scripture uh, towards us. Um, And so I just want us to be thinking about that that there is a, definitely a mysterious um, element to, to a lot of the text that we're going to be looking at today, um, but also uh, the thing that continues to, 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 to be um, affirmed by, uh, to me as I go through this text, as I go through these stories, is that even in the midst of peculiarity in the story, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, my goodness, God is faithful. My goodness, God has this just way of stepping into a situation regardless of whatever stuff the main characters have going on in the story, just stepping into this story and redeeming it and moving it forward for His purposes. So growing up, my family was not immune from drama, my extended family, but I can honestly say that my time with my extended family was some of the happiest moments of my life. Just sitting around after dinner, usually after a holiday like Thanksgiving or Christmas, with my grandparents and my aunts and my uncles, hearing them laugh and hearing them relax together, um, those thoughts still remind me of a place that was safe. The room, it's funny, was always filled with cigarette smoke. Practically everybody smoked in those days, at least in my family. But, but you know what? There was no place I would have rather been. I didn't need whatever else was going on in the world outside that room because my family, my, my people were, were gathered together. I have no real recollection of what was discussed, but those years were formative for me in powerful ways. And, and looking back, it's funny how, how unplanned it all seems. These days, my family all live in, in different parts of the state or in different states altogether, and when we do find time after the holidays or after special occasions, it doesn't take long for things to begin to feel like they once did, although my mom does ask everybody to smoke outside now. And then we wonder why we don't do it more often, and I can't imagine that I'm alone in this experience. 
See, today we're going to spend some time looking at a story of a family that you might call dysfunctional. And I think dysfunctional is a good word for this particular family because it was this specific family that had a specifically designed function. They were people blessed by God in order that they might be a blessing to others. In fact, God had repeatedly promised, not only um, did He intend on growing this family's numbers exponentially, but He also intended to bless the entire world through them. Now, we know today that, that how God ended up doing that, how He fulfilled that promise, was by putting on flesh Himself and becoming a part of this family and dying for the sins of humanity so that all people, all nations could be welcomed back into the larger family of God. As Jesus hung on the cross, He was fulfilling something started with Abraham centuries early, but er, centuries earlier. But remember, Jesus didn't fulfill his role as Messiah by becoming some conquering king, riding into Rome on a, hor- on a horse with a, with a sword drawn, leading an angry Jewish army to have their revenge on the empire. He fulfilled his messianic role by becoming the suffering servant, by embracing humility, by embracing sacrifice, by embracing peace. We're going to talk a lot more about those types of things during Lent, but for now, we're going to spend this and and another two weeks after this meditating on the life of this family that's called Israel. I'm especially excited about how we're going to finish things off, and I'll, I'll say this, please, whatever you do, Do not miss church on March 3rd. That's all I'm going to say about that. Still, there is something about the story we're going to look at today that foreshadows pieces of the Jesus story. And so, as we go through this story, see if you can pick up on them. So, we're going back to Jacob. When we last left Jacob, he had just experienced a powerful moment of God showing up. He had fled his home because he had cheated and deceived his brother Esau out of a birthright, out of blessing. Esau then, in response, sought to kill Jacob. So Jacob fled to his uncle Laban's house. And on the way, God appears to Jacob in a dream and reiterates the promises made to Jacob's grandfather about how he would somehow use this family as a rescue mission to save the world. Up until that point in his life, Jacob had used his connection to this family and even his connection to God as something to be manipulated, as something to be exploited for his own selfish gain. And even after this dream, it's really still not clear whether or not Jacob really got it. Just as he gets up and he goes on his way, he he sort of gives God this if-then statement. Well, I suppose if God's going to be good to me, I can let him be my God. He, He promises God a tenth of all he's given, and then he moves on to his uncle Laban's house. And that's where we pick up the story today. Jacob traveled over 500 miles from his home to the homeland of his uncle Laban, a man with some evident wealth. As as he journeys into Laban's territory, 
Uh, he encounters a group of shepherds tending their flocks, and, and he asks them if they know his uncle, and he's pleased to find out that they do. In fact, says one of the shepherds, here comes Rachel, Laban's youngest daughter. Here, here she comes right now. Now, try to forget that Rachel was actually Jacob's first cousin. And when we first saw Rachel, when Jacob first saw Rachel, it, it was like that scene. Has anybody ever seen the movie Wayne's World? Um, when Wayne first sees Cassandra and uh, Dreamweaver starts playing, you know the scene. It's love at first sight, and Jacob falls for Rachel immediately. He, he, even, he even runs over to her in tears and starts kissing her and weeping aloud. Not a strategy I'd recommend for any of you young lads in the room. But hey, it's in the Bible. Anyway, Jacob, uh, Rachel takes Jacob to see her father, and Laban is overwhelmed with joy. He, he invites Jacob to stay with him, and, and Jacob stays a month, falling deeper in love with Rachel every day he's there. The only problem is that at this point, Rachel isn't the eldest daughter, and it was the custom for the oldest daughter to be given in marriage first. Rachel's older sister, Leah, hadn't married yet. But as sad as that was, the truth was that Jacob was head over heels in love with Rachel. So he offers his uncle seven years of service in return for Rachel's hand in marriage at the end of those seven years. And in probably, I'd say, the most tender verse of the Bible so far, we see in Genesis twenty-nine twenty, Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. All shucks. Thing is, that's where the Hallmark movie ends. At the end of seven years, Jacob goes to his uncle and requests Rachel's hand in marriage. So his uncle throws a big feast with lots of people, and the drinks are flowing, and the celebration is high spirit. It is in high spirits. But somehow, in the midst of the celebration, his uncle has a sneaky plan. His uncle Laban secretly sneaks his eldest daughter Leah into Jacob's bedchambers, and Jacob doesn't notice until the next morning that he had actually slept with Leah instead of Rachel. Well, as you can imagine, Jacob isn't too happy with his uncle Laban. He storms in to see him and demands an explanation for the insult that he had just received. Laban's only excuse is that it was their custom for the eldest daughter to be married first. And he says, um, tell you what, Jake, you can have Rachel too. Um, actually, you can have her right now. Just promise me that you'll work for me another seven years. It's funny, first, how the women don't seem to have too much of a say in this whole scenario. It's also interesting that you might notice another character who hasn't featured much in the story so far, God. Well, Jacob serves Laban for another seven years, now with two wives. And one of the things we've seen about this family in the stories of previous weeks is that God has a way of moving the story forward, even when the main characters don't seem to request his involvement, God sees Leah and has mercy on her because he knows that she's in just a horrible situation. Essentially, she's an unwanted bride, and up until that point, neither Leah or Rachel had conceived. By God's mercy, Leah becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son named Reuben. Then three other sons follow immediately after that, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. 
By this point, Rachel is distraught because Leah has given Jacob four sons, and she can tell that Jacob's frustrated by this. So she gets this idea that Jacob should sleep with her handmaiden, Bilhah. Rachel figures that if Jacob can't have a son by her, then maybe Bilhah can have a child on her behalf. So Jacob sleeps with Bilhah, and she gives birth to a son named Dan. Rachel is pleased by this and continues to encourage Jacob to sleep with Bilhah, and Bilhah gives birth to a second child named Naphtali. Meanwhile, Leah watches all of this and thinks, well, two can play at that game. Jacob, you sleep with my maidservant Zilpah. So Jacob does as he's told, and Zilpah gives birth to a child they name Gad, and then later to another child named Asher. So you might begin to see why I named this sermon Thanksgiving might have, might have, must have been awkward. Things go from bad to worse. One day, Rachel sees that Leah's son Reuben had found some um, mandrakes. Uh, I know that seems like a Harry Potter reference, but uh, mandrakes are sort of a, of a Mediterranean plant that was supposedly a, a natural aphrodisiac. And, and she goes to Leah and she asks for some of Reuben's mandrakes. And Leah just kind of gives her this cutting remark. She says, well, first you steal my husband and now you want to take away my son's mandrakes. And Rachel says, oh, all right, all right, all right. Well, in exchange for a few of those mandrakes, I tell you what, um, you, can, you can have Jacob tonight. Well, Jacob comes home from work that evening, and Leah informs him that she has hired him. So Jacob sleeps with Leah and bears a son named Issachar. Eventually, this continues, and Leah conceives two more times. She gives birth to another son named Zebulun and a daughter, finally, named Dinah. By now, Jacob has 11 kids from three different women, and none of them are from Rachel, the only one who had the thing that all the others didn't have, his heart. Finally, God remembers Rachel, and she gives birth to Joseph. And we're going to be talking a lot more about Joseph over the next two weeks. After Rachel gives birth to Joseph, Jacob decides that he spent quite enough time in his uncle's house, and he asks his uncle Laban to allow him to leave. Now, his uncle Laban gets a bit nervous because he's noticed how abundantly God has blessed him through his association with Jacob. He doesn't mind giving Jacob more wages, but he also doesn't want him to leave. So Jacob offers to continue tending Laban's flocks for only a while longer if only Laban would allow him to. He says, tell you what we're going to do. I want to go through the flocks and pick out all of the sheep and the goats which have like blemish marks on them. That way, any of the ones who don't have blemish marks would be his uncles, and that's how they would keep the flock separate. Laban appears to agree, but Laban, he gets sneaky again, and he has his sons remove all of the marked sheep and the goats before Jacob has a chance to pick them out, and he moves them like days away. Jacob then figures out a way, and this is a really kind of funny part of the Bible, he figures out a way to breed sheep and goats with blemishes, and it's this odd kind of story involving the way he arranges sticks in front of the flock. Um, The long and short of it is that God continues to bless Jacob. No matter what uh, his uncle does to try to cheat him, Jacob just continues to prosper, and he just continues to grow in wealth. Finally, 
God sees that Laban has come to the end of his rope and tells Jacob to return to the land of his fathers. And he also promises Jacob that he'll have his back. So he gathers up his family. Jacob gathers up his family and all of his possessions, and he prepares to set out for home, back, back to his father Isaac. But he doesn't tell Laban he's leaving. Not only that, before they leave, Rachel sneaks into her father's house and steals his idols, these little statues of gods. And when Laban realizes what's happened, he's furious. He gathers his men and he sets out in pursuit of Jacob. When he catches up with him, he demands an explanation for the insult. He says, why did you tell me you wanted to leave? I I would have given you a grand farewell with song and celebration. You didn't even let me kiss my own daughters goodbye. He also mentions that God had recently visited him in a dream and told him not to say anything to Jacob, good or bad. So he he said, I don't want to press the issue. After all, Laban knows that Jacob does desire to go home to be with his father and to be with his people. But Laban says, I got to do it. I have to ask one thing, though. Why did you steal my household gods? Jacob says, listen, I left because I was afraid. I was afraid for myself. I was afraid for my wives. I was afraid for my kids. Listen to how Jacob suddenly is not so selfish anymore. I thought you would hurt us, or I thought maybe you would take away my family by force. That's why I fled. I'll tell you this, though. I didn't steal your gods. If you find them among anyone in my company, they shall not live. So little did Jacob know that it was actually Rachel who had stolen the gods, and Laban, there's this kind of comedic scene where Laban is searching all around, but Rachel continues to hide the gods from Laban. After searching and not finding them, Jacob finally just kind of blows up at his uncle Laban. He lays into him in this long speech, but in the midst of the speech, he realizes that it had been God the whole time who had carried him through this dark season. He says, there I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. I've served you for the past 20 years. And then, this is awesome, he says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. I think it's as if things finally start falling into place for Jacob. He, he had hints of it before then, but he's seen, and he's still kind of seeing through a dark glass, but, but he's starting to piece the puzzle together. He's starting to piece together the fact that this never was Jacob's story. It never was his father Isaac's story. It wasn't even his grandfather Abraham's story. This always was God's story. And God would do whatever was necessary to redeem the actions of other characters in order to bring about his divine plan. Laban had treated him like dirt, yet he prospered. The development of his family had been, shall we say, less than virtuous. Yet he had wives. He had 12 children that he now feared to lose 
God had blessed him richly, even though he deserved none of it. And perhaps in that moment, he realized now more than ever what he needed to do. He needed to first set things right with his uncle Laban, and then he needs to set out to confront his brother Esau and beg for his forgiveness. Now, Jacob, Jacob was traveling with a lot of people and a lot of possessions, so he had to travel quite slowly. So, after he sets things right with Laban, he he sends messengers ahead to speak with Esau. And the messengers are to carry the message that Jacob is now a rich man and that he's headed home, but he hopes to put things right with his brother. Now, the messengers come back, and, and they tell Jacob they did indeed find Esau, and apparently Esau is going to come out and meet Jacob. Oh, and by the way, Esau has 400 men with him. Jacob is terrified. He's terrified of losing the family that he cared so much about. So he divides his company into two camps, thinking that, well, if Esau attacks one of them, at least the other will be able to escape. And then finally, like a breath of fresh air, as we read through this story of Genesis, finally a character prays to God, asking for his help. And Jacob hits his knees, and he says, "'Oh, God of my father Abraham,' And God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. Listen to this. He says, I am not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown me. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. Now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me. Think of the mothers with the children, Father. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And you remember that if-then statement, that if-then half prayer that Jacob made after he saw the stairway to heaven. And he realized that with God, It was never an if. may have been an if for Jacob, but Jacob never had to worry about whether or not God was going to be faithful to his promises. So Jacob sends a huge portion of what he had ahead to meet Esau as sort of a peace offering. He tells his messengers to tell Esau that all of this is a present from his brother. And moreover, he says, when you find Esau... Be sure to look my brother Esau in the eye, and you tell him that your servant, Jacob, is behind us. Jacob thinks, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he'll accept me. And so, this moment of humility is unprecedented in the biblical narrative up until this point. The commentaries are quick to point out that that the kind of slapstick that preceded the section of Scripture with his uncle Laban, it's like the comic relief that helps the character be able to see his own humanity. But now, no one's laughing, especially not Jacob. 
He's confronted by everything that had come before. He's confronted by the reality of his own brokenness, the brokenness of those that are closest to him. And he realizes that the best way to, to, to move the story forward is to stop acting like a selfish brat and start acting like the child of God he is. And he puts his life in Esau's hands, but more importantly, he realizes that his life was never his. This always has been, and this always will be God's story. And he opens up his hands, and he takes on the role of the sacrificial servant. And that night, he sends his wives and his children to the other side of a river, and he sleeps alone that night, a night very similar to the night many years ago when he had seen that stairway to heaven and and learned that this God is a God who appears in the most unlikely places. And then the oddest thing happens. Instead of a night of restful sleep where he is given a dream of an alternative reality, a man appears and fights Jacob and wrestles with him all night long. Again, this is kind of an odd portion of the story, but in the end, Jacob prevails, yet he walks away limping. Before it was over, the man looked at Jacob and said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven, you have struggled, you have wrestled with, with God and with men and prevailed. What, what, exactly has happened here, is ha- what exactly happened here, we're not really sure. But the not-to-be-missed principle here, before Esau shows up and we find out how this episode ends, is that part of the identity of Israel, part of the the thing that gives Israel purpose and the thing that gives um, Israel their identity as a people is this call to wrestle with the things of God, to wrestle with these stories, to wrestle with the text, to wrestle with the reality of their existence. Not in the sense that we get to tell God how it is, but that we are called to wrestle with the reality of the life that we find ourselves in, even as we struggle to see how God is moving the story forward. I think that all of this, all of the lives and all of the circumstances um, um, uh, that are among us in this room, and we think about our past blessings that we've received from God and, and from others. We think about the sins that we've committed against God and against others. We think of the challenges we face with the mountains we climb, and we wrestle with those truths as we deal honestly with them and seek God's face even in the midst of them. So in the morning light, Jacob looks up, And he sees that his brother Esau, the man that he had harmed, the man that he had betrayed, is coming at him with 400 men. And the text says, he put the servants with their children in front, with Leah, with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times, seven times until he came near to his brother. This was the ultimate sign of respect. Whatever Jacob was, all that he had, he was laying it out before his brother. And in that moment, Jacob had no way of knowing what to expect. He only knew what he deserved. 
So he laid out his entire life, everything that he had, before this man who represented all of Jacob's most regrettable mistakes. And it must have felt like forever that Jacob waited for Esau to get him, to get to him. And he's thinking, maybe he'll curse me. Maybe he'll kill me. Whatever happens, whatever happens, whatever he does to me, I deserve it. And his tears roll down his eyes. And Esau approaches him. He begins to notice that Esau as well is crying. Esau runs to meet him and embraces him. And he says he fell on his neck and kissed him. And these two men wept. These two brothers put the years behind them and simply held each other. There's no words until Esau finally looks up And he sees the women and the children who are with his brother. And he says, who do we have here? Jacob says, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Who do we have here? The blessings that I've received from our God. His servants and family show Esau immense respect. Esau finally asks about that present that had been sent to him. He says, says, what do you mean by all this? And and Jacob says, "Um, um, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. He wasn't talking about God then. He was, he was talking about Esau. And, and Esau says, I, I have enough, brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And then Jacob says, no, please, if I've found favor in your sight, then please accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face. I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. Because I have enough. I mean, how is that for this incredible scene? These two brothers who have been through life and who have had these these deep, complicated paths, uh, pasts holding each other and weeping and both of them kind of having this like, I have enough. No, I have enough. No, let me bless you. No, let me bless you. Wow. And we get to that story. We get to that part of the story and I just have to wonder like, do I have that kind of faith? Would I be able to say I have enough? Yesterday, James and I went to uh, New York City with, with Karen and Mary and Wendy and, and Alicia, and we went to, um, did a bunch of different things. We all did different things in New York. And um, my, my son and I, James and I, went and we went to play in, in Central Park. And Central Park is this kind of funny place because it's like this, this park in the middle of the, you know, one of the biggest cities in the world. And James just goes wild. He just runs with joy, and he's running around these rocks, and he's running around these trails, and he's saying hi to dogs, which he never does. He's saying, like, he's so happy. And I just, like, I'm struck by the amount of joy that he has. And in that moment, I'm thinking, like, wow, I have enough. I have enough. I've been so blessed by my God. And then we go a little further, and we go into the city, and 
we go down to Times Square and both of us are just overwhelmed by like sensory overload. We're just overwhelmed by the, 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 the screens and the advertisements and, um, and we both just kind of like, wow, this just, you know, isn't well, the place that we wanted to be. And we thought about the like pure joy, this, this simple joy that we had running around this park just like an hour earlier and compared that to this just overwhelming sense of this place that kind of like represented a culture that doesn't know when to say, I have enough. The thing about this is the most powerful part, I think, about this passage is that here are these two brothers finally saying, I have enough. Am I able to say that? Am I able to say, I have enough, I have enough blessing, and then what do I do with that? Do, do I say, I have had enough, so then I, I hoard my blessings, or I forget about them? Or do I use that to finally say, how am I going to turn that back around and now start blessing others because I have enough? I'm going to now start reconciling with people. I'm going to start offering forgiveness to people because I've had enough. I'm going to start treating people with respect. I'm going to start welcoming people into what I have because I have enough. That would have been tested by Jacob just a short time later. When Rachel conceives one more time and she dies in childbirth, giving birth to the last of Jacob's children, Benjamin. And of course, um, these 12 sons is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel that are going to feature in much of the story moving forward. Again, God does his divine plan, but I love that idea, I have enough. And maybe he saw that, maybe he experienced the weeping and the distress of losing this woman that he loved, but still was able to look at his kids and still look, able to look at the blessings that he's received. And even in that, might have said, might have been able to say, Lord, I have enough. How might I bless others? And for the next two weeks, we're going to look at the story of Joseph, his son, Jacob's son, and Joseph has a story of his own that uh, has been made into Broadway musicals. Hmm. Right. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll continue that, but for now, let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to our story. <laughs> and thank you for reminding us that it never was our story. It was always yours. Thank you for reminding us that the story of New Hope Community Church is the story of you and your son. The story of King Jesus who has called your people blessed to be a blessing. That we might be a people who reflect your love and your grace and your peace back to a world that is broken and desperate for your love. Father, we thank you for the work that you've done uh, in our midst today, for the praises that we get to lift up to you. And Father, I just ask for the encouragement and for the strength of you as we leave this place. In the most holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.